10,000 feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, Ph.D., and our feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we will be nuancing the gun debate in relationship to March for Our Lives. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? You can find us in select places, not all. For example, you can subscribe to us using your favorite podcast app. If you have the iTunes app, remember you can click on that and leave us a review directly, which is a good way to spread the word about our podcast. On the social media tip, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. On Facebook, we have two spaces. You can just like our podcast page for episode updates, or you can join our closed community group, Feminist Killjoys Community-WTF Power! And then on Spotify, make sure to subscribe to our mixtape titled Feminist Killjoys PhD Mixtape. That's a big surprise there, curated by Rachel. And if you have some extra dollars and want to join the forces that are supporting feminist media makers, you can do it two ways. First, you can uh, join our Patreon group and people who donate a dollar or more a month get access to our Killjoy review newsletter that comes out weekly. People who give $5 a month or more get access to bonus episodes and other content. And everybody in that circle of one to five to more dollars gets access to free stickers. Or you can go to PayPal. Actually, first, you should go to fkjphd.com. Click on the birdie that takes you to our PayPal account and you can leave a one-time donation or some people are doing monthly donations through PayPal, which is awesome as well. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us at fkj.phd at gmail.com or you can call us and leave us a voicemail, 414-858-7818. How are you, Rachel? I am pretty well. Uh, this week has been pretty okay. I, as I've mentioned, I'm coaching yoga teacher training, and it's uh, mostly a very good, healing, lovely space. And um, one of our fellow coaches uh, is going through some health issues, and we just sort of did this chakra circle of sending, like, green light, that's the heart chakra color, uh, to this person. And it was a really, really powerful experience, and there was just a lot of love in the room. So that was a nice little woo-woo moment from my week. I've also been working on fellowship applications, which is good because it's giving me a little bit of hope that I can still have a foot in the academic door, even as a quote-unquote independent scholar, which I feel like people say very pejoratively, but with enough of us having to do it because of circumstances, maybe it'll be less less pejorative. Um, but the fellowships would enable me to still write the book that every academic hopes to write. So um, this, these, these proposals have been sort of like quasi-book proposals too, which is good and helpful because, you know, after not getting that job that I've mentioned on air, my self-esteem has been pretty low. So this that's been this has been kind of digging me out a little bit. How about you? How was your week? My week was stressful mm-hmm. and low self-esteem, which I'm assuming we must have some things in common because we're both cancer rising, right? No, you're not. You're Pisces. <laughs> I'm Pisces rising, but we're Aquarians. Why did I think that we were both Cancer rising? 
Because I was misinformed before oh. I did my own chart. Scratch that again. I am Capricorn rising. I am Pisces moon. Oh, okay. Capricorn. But, yeah. but you thought you were Cancer rising or no? I thought... I thought I was cancer rising okay. for a long time. All right. That's why it was in my head. I was misinformed. I finally did my own chart, and I was like, oh, Capricorn rising, Pisces moon. Um, but regardless, I will say, though, that a lot of people were writing about how Mercury retrograde felt mm. particularly difficult, even beyond communication stuff, just like a lot of heavy stuff. And also, it was the full moon, full blue moon in Libra yesterday. My therapist said to me, wow, you must be really stressed out. And I thought, I'm, stre- I'm stressed out? Because I was just doing my, you know, I'm just like teaching, I'm doing my thing, I'm just going around one day at a time, not even like stopping mm-hmm. to think that like things could stress me out. I just, mm-hmm. I'm like, this is my job. So one thing really quick, a horrible thing that happened at my school is that there was a, what they call a biased incident. It is not technically a hate crime. I was talking to Rachel's <sighs> partner about this in detail, because FYI, a hate crime is something in which like a criminal activity has to happen. So it has to be a murder or a stabbing or vandalism, things that are like actual crimes in our world or in our society. So that's bias to begin with. But what happened with my students is there was a radical Jewish person, and I'm saying that because I saw a picture of him. He has a long beard. He's got a cap. There's nothing nothing bad to say about Jewish people. It's just the radical iterations of religion. Uh, he was very pro-Israel, and in his visit to school, he was a registered— Can I— yep. Can I pause just to, like, avoid any, like, bristling? I mean, sure. you, you can just say Zionist, yeah? That describes... Oh, sure. He just... You know what I mean? Nobody... I'm, like, self-defining him as Zionist. I'm trying to be as broad as possible because there's been no police report put out. He didn't come in and say, I am this. But based on his behavior, I'm defining him as such. I mean, he's clearly a Zionist based on what he was saying. It is true. It's like when we call people white supremacists and it means a lot more if we can find connections to white supremacy because you and I might call somebody a white supremacist but then if we if they find out that that person has like a connection to a white supremacist organization it matters more like in the law and in charges so that's fair that's fair go ahead yep I'm in deep with this one so yeah radical Jewish probably Zionist guy comes into our school and is a registered student and so he he's familiar with the organization of our school to make a long story short he goes into our prayer meditation room and witnesses or watches women praying muslim women praying and like shuffles through his backpack so it starts to obviously freak these women out because men usually don't stand there and watch women pray so one of the women goes and reports it to security meanwhile he goes to our diversity center where a lot of muslim women hang out and he somehow knows that on the wall there is a map in which somebody has handwritten palestine into Israel to demonstrate that Palestine still exists as a country, to which he approaches the map and starts screaming, oh, I can swear on this podcast, fuck Palestine, fuck Mm -hmm. Palestine, Uh, this is America, you don't exist, Palestine doesn't exist, and then he crosses it, he he just like etches the entire thing of Israel out and the Palestine edition. And so there's just Muslim women in the room. They go get my student, it turns out, my student who was across the way to help intervene because security is not there yet. And so basically these women had to deal with this this dude who had horrible things to say to them. And I will Ugh. just say like this has been publicly said about the situation in terms of like we have said this out loud to administration that like 
People were not happy with the way security dealt with the situation. They minimized it. Some of the security minimized the situation. There was just some other parts of the situation in which people didn't feel fully fully supported. And it was just really frustrating because we've been doing a lot of diversity inclusion work on our campus. And it's like, all right, well, shit hit the fan. Let's see what happens. And it's like, boom, it like showed us where we were as a campus. Mm -hmm. And definitely the students and the faculty and staff came together and showed their support the following day. It was very overwhelming. I made Palestinian colored ribbons. It was an idea of somebody else's. And they like flew off the shelves. Like I couldn't make them fast enough. And there was awesome, awesome support, which was great from the community. But that is great. But those in power that have the power to arrest him or escalate the situation, you know, things could have been handled a little bit differently, I think, that would have made the women feel more supported. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I got myself in real deep with that situation, just sending my support. And I think that was part of one of my stressors of the week. So I was dealing with that. I'm just really sorry that it happened. And it sounds, yeah, terrible and all all counts. Yes, but the yeah. students wanted everybody to know that it happened. They didn't want it brushed under the right. rug, so I thought right. I would share. And better news, I had to take my cat to a somewhat urgent vet appointment, and so I had to find a vet yesterday mm. that was open on a Saturday. And there was this place called Access Vet Care, and there were a walk-in clinic. I called them, walk-in clinic, and I was like, all right. I show up, and I recognize the person behind the desk. He identifies as a trans man, so I was like, oh, this is rad. Get my paperwork, sit down. They're really nice. And the paperwork's, like, asking me what my gender pronouns are. And I'm looking around. I'm like, what is this place? I'm in a vet. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. In, like, a sm- That's rad. Yeah, small town outside of Minneapolis with Cece, my cat. They're asking me, like, my pronouns are, like, if Cece is a girl or a boy, they don't assume, you know, based on names. Yeah. I was like, what is this place? And so we waited <laughs> for a while. Cece got the care that she needed. Oh, also, it's uh, it's a pay scale vet place so you pay what you can like you oh that's amazing you mark that's amazing yeah you mark like i need help or whatever it takes so you just sit on the spectrum and then they check you out in the vet office so then if you can't afford stuff you don't have to do it in front of the waiting room like that's a a private discussion Mm -hmm. and then the last awesome thing about this vet is that i or i had a river west shirt on And the vet asked me if I was from Milwaukee, and I said, yeah. And it turns out the vet is also from Milwaukee, and they moved up here, and they opened up this vet office because we don't have a walk-in, affordable, accessible clinic here. Mm, Like, two mm -hmm. months ago. So I, like, the clinic just opened, and I just... Wow. And they're amazing, and... That's so cool. That's great. It's very goth. Like, I can tell there's, like, goth vibes in there like in terms of the arts like 90s goth like i felt really comfortable i was like whoa this is like super my place yeah that's so cool yeah it was awesome i'm sorry for the tough part of the week um and also yeah i think there was a lot of just like heavy feelings and self-esteem feelings and all the things um in addition to what you went through at school for for a lot of people the emotions stuff yeah but yay for that vet clinic okay shall we move on to our topic of the day Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> the sun is setting on the century. And we are armed to the teeth. We're all working together now. 
make our lives mercifully. A couple weeks ago, we had an interview with Dawson Barrett, uh, and we did talk a little bit about the youth organizing happening around March for Our Lives, but we didn't really get into uh, a discussion about perspective on uh, the the discourse surrounding that march. We were much more talking about youth activism and youth organizing. And I personally want to start by saying and making clear, because I'm about to say things that might feel counter to this, but I really am really in awe of the organizing that, that, that's been going on on uh, behalf of the youth, by the youth, for the youth. Uh, I think March for Our Lives is something that I would never... Uh, disparage. I think it's really powerful anytime there's mass organizing. I think it's a really good thing as long as it's, you know, not uh, right-leaning or, or reactionary. That said, I do think that the politics of gun reform and whether it's for, related to March for Our Lives or gun reform discourse more generally, I think there's a lot of problems with it. And we did have an episode with a member from Redneck Revolt where we addressed some of this, but I uh, both of us thought that it might be good to to speak to to speak to this topic again, particularly in relation to the march and what it's bringing into public consciousness. And we definitely have slightly different views on it. So, my my f- sort of first entry point into this is I support the youth, and also I think the politics are not really great uh, in terms of what is being central proposed and and centered in in this discussion. So that's how I'll I'll start. Melody, what's your sort of first comment about all this? Conversely, I would say (laughs) that I'm much more in line with what the students are suggesting as, let me put it this way, if the students are arguing for X, then I have to support X because I'm not a student in a high school. I'm much more in like the listening phase of my take on these things. I mean, I am a teacher in a community college. I could be impacted by this tomorrow. Uh, at the same time, they are the experts in this because they experienced it. And also they experienced growing up in schools that were focused on keeping them safe from gun violence. So besides my personal opinions, on gun reform, like I'm just kind of taking what they say as like the focus that needs to be happening. But I have a different set of opinions on like what legislation is doing because legislation is not reflecting what the students are asking for. So you definitely have critiques of the students' platform. And I would say, I would, I would just at this point, even whatever the critiques are, even if I would like theoretically agree with them, I'm just not comfortable critiquing youth at this point. I totally get that. I understand the importance of listening to people who are most victimized by something. And also, I think that we could say this where I think, first of all, we're making a monolith of the youth. So there are also white supremacist youths and there are youths that shoot up schools like, you know, so there is what does it mean to listen to the youth is the first thing I guess I guess we're specifically talking about the March for Our Lives organizers maybe if that's what we want to narrow it down to Um, but even so the Parkland organizers uh, they put out this manifesto of what they want and um, many of the points that they were demanding were directly 
supporting the empowerment of law enforcement. So they, uh, as, and it's, it, so I'll mention those in a minute. And then the other big thing that was a prime sort of part of that document was a conflation of mental health issues with mass shootings. And I think both of those are extremely troubling. And I admittedly probably would have had a very similar view when I was 17 years old, but I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that not, you know, that maybe your politics aren't really well developed when you're 17, or maybe they are, but I personally don't think that these, um, that this manifesto is an example of like a, a good, coherent uh, direction for change. And I think that it's dangerous to use identity politics in a way that uh, puts particular identities on a pedestal without an intervention of politics that are actually going to create the world that we want to live in. Because when you have two bullet points of your manifesto saying, put more put more cops in schools and keep the cops armed and make mental health professionals report to law enforcement, um, I think that's incredibly dangerous, particularly to Black low-income youth. And I think it's dangerous to continue to perpetuate the, the narrative that um, mass shootings are related to, uh, to conflate that with mental health issues. There are some people that would say, like, fuck that connection at all. They're, they're not related at all. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I think that anybody who is capable of a mass shooting, I think that we can talk about me mental illness with more nuance. Like, we need to first recognize that people with men mental illness are far disproportionately victims of violence than perpetrators of violence. And so this discourse really... Um, flips that in, in a really dangerous way. But I also think it's okay to say that mental health is an issue that is that that affects everybody, both both victims and abusers. And, you know, victims and abusers are often people can be both of those things. And so anyway, that's sort of a side note and tangent. But I think that I think that it's important that people with with uh, more more informed politics, like, like, speak up about this. I'm not I'm not trying to take over. I mean, this is our humble little podcast. I'm, it's not like I have a platform um, that is going to shut them down in, in significant ways. So, But I think that these narratives and this discussion needs to exist alongside of this mainstream sort of liberal glorification of gun reform. And uh, I want to expand this discussion of gun reform beyond their manifesto. To kind of sum up the two points of the manifesto that you don't agree with and I would also not agree with is the one that says uh, for mental health care to be able to communicate with law enforcement because right now because of HIPAA men you can't doctors cannot communicate with outside people about records so that's that's the point about the law enforcement talking with mental health professionals and then also their call to increase more school security so that would be more law enforcement I feel like the other points of the manifesto in terms of integrating more law enforcement they don't have to do with that like one of them is to please allow the CDC to actually research the impacts of gun violence because if our listeners have not heard this the CDC is banned from doing that kind of research. There is no research, and so it's really hard when we're asking for change for people to be like, well, we need to see the research. And then the CDC says, you will, you're refusing to fund research about gun violence and like how to stop it, right? So this is part of the reason why we don't have answers at a national level, which is a whole 
other point, but I just wanted to clarify that. So am I, is that correct though, Rachel, about like the two points that you're not, you're not down with is the increasing school security and then law enforcement communicating with mental health professionals. Those two, and also just like the overemphasis and focus on mental health being problematic and uh, potentially harmful to uh, the yeah. fight to destigmatize people with mental illness and to recognize the disproportionate impact of violence on people with mental illness. Gotcha. Just clarifying. Yeah. Summarizing. Yeah, no, and I think, I think your point about the CDC and their point about the CDC is super important. I think you know, I agree with a lot of the things they're sort of saying. I would also say that it's a testament to sort of Generation Z that um, even the white Parkland students are talking about the students of color in in their schools. And of course, Emma Gonzalez is a student of color who isn't always being recognized as such. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of good coming out of this. And also, I think it's really, really important that um, if there's a mass movement around guns, it just needs to be, the scope needs to be broadened. And this is not new. And so if I can, unless you want to jump in before I sort of get into just like a brief history. I just wanted to amplify the point that Emma Gonzalez, and I think there was another, but the woman who threw up during the her talk on stage. Mm-hmm. So I feel like Emma Gonzalez, and, and I believe Sam Fuentes, just based on last name, which is not accurate always there are there are not white people part of the major leadership i think what people are trying to say is that the african american experience isn't highlighted and this is a reminder that when we are talking about people of color that it's best to be as specific as possible because that ends up washing away people like emma mm-hmm. that yeah. don't identify as white and it's like what about her and I mean she has way more stuff on her plate than to like correct everybody on this shit but I just I right. was very confused when I've been hearing about this like I like I'm like I feel like the it's not the most diverse group of students I've ever seen but like it's not all white dudes you know and right. like there's queerness in that leadership circle and yep. I, but I think what they're trying to say is that the African-American experience wasn't brought in and I don't know, Rachel, how you feel about this, but in general, the leadership has opened up to the African-American voices. Questioning why they weren't part of the leadership in the first place is something we could talk about. I mean, that's basic community engagement or leadership development. But they do, I mean, African-American students at Parkland have been given a platform to talk about their experiences as well, which ties back to your point about law enforcement or more security in the schools, which is something that I was dealing with at my school, too, is like, the answer is more police. And then half the students are like, that's scary. No, thank you. That is something that... The students themselves talk through, which it's awesome to see. And this is an example of them being pushed mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. on their politics, which is why I think it's good to do that. And thankfully, there there I mean, of course, there are young black kids that are going to know that isn't the best the best thing. I also want to just highlight Naomi Wadler, who gave a really fucking powerful speech. An eleven year old girl, yeah. black girl, um, was really really powerful about the the lack of attention to black women and girls as victims of, of gun violence. I think I forgot to mention this part about me feeling uncomfortable critiquing the students. Is mm-hmm. that there's been this, as Dawson reminded us a couple weeks ago, these kids are like getting bullied in a really intense way by people on social media, by Fox News commenters. Yeah. Like in a like a hor- like in I 
it's just incredible. And so I don't even want to feel or seem like I'm in that boat, right? Which I'm not, but there's been all of this bullying and criticism on them for doing work that nobody asked them to do, that they wanted to do themselves, that teens usually don't do. And so that was really pissing me off. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to, I don't even want to seem like I'm part of that club. And we're obviously not bullying them. We're like the activists that have been doing this work for longer. And so we would, we have some interesting hindsight maybe. But right. I think that's also why I'm I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about it, knowing about all the bullying they're going through. Obviously, if we were speaking with them face to face, we wouldn't, you know, we'd be very supportive. And I just, that's why it's making me a little uncomfortable. I, I totally, totally get that. And I, you know, I haven't published anything about this. I haven't gotten on my high horse. I've recirculated some articles that I think are saying similar things that we'll put uh, in our newsletter or some links to but um, and reference today. But yeah, I totally get not wanting to contribute to anything that's going to sort of add more harm to them. And also their platform is absolutely going, if it all came true tomorrow, would absolutely harm other youth that I also care about not harming. You know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. So so before I said my thing about whitewashing, you are going to dig into a little bit of a lecture. Did you want to proceed with that? Yeah. And I'll, I mean, I'll try to make this as short as possible. So it, hopefully just a, a brief summary rather than a lecture. But I just want to contextualize this discussion. I mean, these ideas are certainly things I've learned from, uh, you know, activists and historians and, and thinkers before me. Uh, and so I just wanted to give a little context that this this discussion is not at all new, and there's been a long history. And, and so now, basically, I, I want to extend it beyond out, outside of Parkland and outside of March for Our Lives. I want to talk more broadly about um, sort of liberal gun control and gun reform policy measures, which are very similar to what the Parkland students are espousing. And the the ways in which these gun control and gun reform measures have been deeply embedded in racism since the beginning of our nation. So a, a lot of this history I'm um, uh, borrowing from Creed Newton's essay in Al Jazeera that came out, uh, I think, after Las Vegas, the Las Vegas shooting. So starting from the 1600s, there was a Virginia Commonwealth law that had banned slaves from owning guns. But of course, all the other white people could have guns. And then there were, uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation, they created black codes, which disarmed and economically disenfranchised African-Americans in order to sustain enforcing white supremacy, of course. After, uh, during the 60s, jumping ahead, during the 60s, when militant leftist organizations like the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords Party, um, et cetera, were arming themselves. Uh, The Mulford Act of 1967 was passed, and this was when Ronald Reagan was governor of California, and that was a du- the the this gun the Mulford Act was a gun control measure that was a direct result of leftist movements arming themselves. In 1968, President uh, Richard Nixon banned what they called Saturday night specials, which referred to cheaply made handguns that were associated with crime in minority communities, um, as well as barring uh, felons, the mentally ill, and others from owning firearms. And of course, we regularly experience today double standards of treatment of white people with guns and people of color with guns. Um, and we see this in media, people in you know parades when white people can walk around with guns, and of course, the fact that police can walk around with guns and military members can walk around with guns without people really flinching about it in mainstream sort of the people who are 
touting these gun reform measures. So we have lots of evidence that gun reform has been in direct service of disarming poor people, people of color, um, and other disenfranchised communities. And none of this gun conform gun reform policies have ever addressed demilitarizing the cops or demilitarizing the military and taking guns away from those people. This is really frustrating when so much gun violence is perpetrating. In fact, the vast majority of gun violence is perpetrated by the cops and by the military. It's just that we don't consider that gun violence because somehow hegemony has enabled our nation to believe that the dead Iraqis don't count as victims of gun violence and that the black men killed in the streets don't count as gun violence. So this, to me, just that that history itself and these double standards and the sort of lack of critical thinking about the way that the state is armed uh, to control us and that we consent to that is totally enough for me to be on the side of leftists who uh, choose to arm themselves and not being a super big proponent of gun reform measures in mainstream government. Well, I'm actually curious, are you not interested in gun reform at all or within the system that we're existing within right now, which would probably produce inequitable gun reform? I mean, my dream would be that we like every gun just, you know, melted them or, you know, I'm I'm not I want to learn how to operate a gun because I basically want to learn how to make an make a gun not work, take a, take a gun apart to make it not work. You know, if I was ever in a situation where there was a gun present to just disarm it or whatever or whatever you call it. Um, I want to learn that to feel competent. But I but I don't I don't want to own one. I don't want to. This is not about me fetishizing the weapon itself. This is so, no, I would prefer to live in a world without guns. Given that we do live in a world with guns, in a society that I don't think gun control measures, especially, I mean, you'll hear a lot of liberals say, like, this isn't about taking away your guns, it's about sensible, sensible reform. And that, like, enrages me, that idea sensible, because, you know, sensible for who? If it's how is it sensible to me, I'm like, how is it sensible to arm the cops and the military who who are consistently harming people like, uh, you know, as a as an anti-capitalist, as an anti-white supremacist, those, those are the arms of the state that maintain capitalism and white supremacy. And so I'm to me, it, there's nothing less sensible than continuing to arm those people and find ways to take guns out of the hands of other people, especially when all of the laws that are proposed are often going to work actively to take guns out of the most disenfranchised members of society's hands, which, again, I wish nobody, I wish nobody had a gun, but I just don't, I haven't yet to hear of a law or a measure be introduced that isn't going to somehow overly criminalize a particular community and increase the likelihood of another black person in prison or another poor person of color, black and brown, black or brown person killed by the cops. I, I don't know how this fits in with your point, but as you were talking, I was thinking about people like Stefan Clark, where the police already assume that they have guns. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that means because... We're technically supposed to have, we have the, well, with Philando Castile as well. Right. We, 
black African or African American men have the legal right to own guns and they, depending on the state, can conceal and carry or open carry. And then at the same time, when assumed to have a gun, are then shot to death. And so I'm not really sure how that all works together, but it's part of this problem that right. in the society where we have the Second Amendment, there are particular people, a.k.a. African-American men, who are killed with just the assumption that they have a gun. Right. So we're not living in a space in which everybody has the right to bear arms. Right. Oh, completely. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. like you mentioned, white men can conceal and carry or open carry all the time, and there is no problem. Like, there's lots of anecdotal evidence of white men waving guns around in front of police officers and nothing happens. Right. You know, we know all the... Dylan Roof, um, the right. guy who shot up Parkland, like, literally, oh my God, was not shot to death, even though he had AKs on, like, not on his body, yeah. but like... Yeah. So just thinking about who is the criminal in this country, assumedly, and like that, right. that black people want to own guns for this reason. It's just messy. I just wanted to bring that up. I don't I don't know how to seamlessly bring that into your point. But I, I think there's a no, connection I think there. There is definitely a connection there. I think, yeah, the, the presumption of criminality, the the presumption of, uh, you know, perceived threat means that, you know, Black men in particular, but we can certainly extend this to other other groups that are criminalized, are including, I mean, let's bring in the, the thing that happened after um, Pulse was a measure that would try to get certain, it was like no-fly zone stuff. It was like a gun thing wrapped up with a no-fly zone thing, and it was basically just like a new terrorist watch list that was, you know, going to, that was, and those measures are so fucking racist and awful to um, Muslim folks and anybody who's perceived as Middle Eastern, which is a whole host of people who may or may not be from the Middle East, because that's how we mm-hmm. that's how we do in the U.S. of A. Yeah. So, I mean, all all of these laws are operating under the assumption that people are going to have sort of equal treatment under this. And um, m- my partner and I got in a heated debate about, uh, you know, banning guns for people who are accused of domestic violence disputes. And already entrenched in that is where are people who actually commit domestic violence actually getting police records? And it's in poor POC communities. You know, there are tons of domestic violence abusers in every category of wealth and race, but there's only a particular part of the population that's getting actual police records about it. Mm -hmm. And in addition, there's lots of uh, academics and, and researchers and activists who talk about the ways in which black women will often get uh, you know, sort of history of domestic violence on their records for self-defense. Um, and so there's just this this uh, deeply racist imbalance of who's actually going to be, who, who the laws will actually impact. And at the end of the day, it's going to be white folks and, you know, mostly wealthy white folks who will have access. And I don't want to live in a world where it's just the cops and the white folks who get out of legal trouble are the only ones with guns. And I would say to your point about domestic abuse that it's even worse that like some women are spending the rest of their lives in jail for killing their domestic abuser. Whereas somebody like George Zimmerman who stood his ground in big giant quotes um, is free. Mm-hmm. Right. From that. Right. So, right. So then my argument that there is like, okay, if this is our system, then then like, let's just get rid of like, n- nobody should have guns. Right. But we're not going to get to that place when 
our police officers will refuse to give up their guns, even though there's plenty of westernized countries that have police forces without guns. Like, it's just not right. it's not going to happen. Right. This is this is hard. This is messy. There is no clear solution. It's yeah. like choose your own right. adventure. But every adventure just ends up in the book disintegrating because they're what can you do? Right, right. Yeah, that's that's a good metaphor for 90s kids. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that running ourselves in circles about what to do about guns is also, and the fact that we're like, oh, I, you know, I don't know what the solution is. Well, it's because the solution isn't actually going to be found in what we do with the actual guns. We need to dig deeper into the root problem of what causes gun violence. And I think, you know, the the sweeping broad answers that people, you know, don't like leftists for because we're annoying and say things like, well, it's white supremacy and capitalism, but I mean, and toxic masculinity. Um, and the patriarchy. I mean, it, and the patriarchy. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, it is those things, mm-hmm. but, but to be more specific, I mean, the root problem is um, arming a wing of the state that is in the service of uh, social control uh, it is the imperialist, pro- you know, racist imperialist project of going overseas and killing people because we feel entitled to it. And it's um, also, you know, if we're thinking about, uh, you know, gun violence in uh, low income, predominantly black communities or black and brown communities, um we need to think about poverty. And so that's, you know, that's why we say capitalism, because we need to think about poverty. And when we make these conversations about violence, about guns, we are ignoring the ways in which capitalism not only not only kills people because it's poverty that increases sort of, you know, gang violence. And that's, you know, any fucking social scientist can tell you that. But it's also that you know, capitalism kills people every single fucking day because people can't afford health care, people can't afford to eat, um, et cetera. So it's it's always interesting to me when, again, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I know we have some liberal listeners and, and I love you very much, but I just feel like it's so often a liberal project when it's like, okay, we're going to try to create this reform because we feel like we can actually do something about it. And it's this very, to me, like individualist, like, oh, I'll feel like I made a change because we got a law on the books that said no domestic abusers or people with mental illness can have guns. Check, check. And it's like, no, that that really isn't going to solve anything. And also it's it's it suggests an end to a problem, right? It's like, well, we have the law on the books, so good. And then it means that we get to keep ignoring the fact that capitalism is going to continue to drive people to desperate measures. It means that white supremacy is going to continue to draw people, whether it's guns or fucking bombs in Austin, right? That was not a gun, but somebody, some fucking white supremacist sent bombs to black families. And so this is, you know, obviously a very sort of prison abolition framework, but, and it's just a generally radical framework, is looking at these root causes. And I think that you know, sort of social obsession with gun reform isn't actually social obsession with ending violence. It's social obsession with trying to feel meekly like maybe they've you've done something. Fact check. Was that guy in Austin confirmed to be a white supremacist? Or is that no. just our hopes? Or not our hopes, but like our <laughs> assumption based on who he targeted? No, he wasn't confirmed. And, and I we literally 
behind the scenes just had a discussion about trying not to say that when it's not sort of confirmed. But I'm sorry, a fucking white dude and they're all black family victims. I... I'm if not, somebody wants to fucking come at me, okay, like, or I'm sorry, I want to say it like the kids do. If somebody wants to at me, you know that lingo. No, but I just heard uh, my my student ta- <laughs> taught me the slang "gang gang." You say it at the end of something. M- oh, really? Me and Rich are going to go go to Dr. Melody's class. You know, bang, gang gang. I don't know. Gang gang. Gang gang, like gang gang, but like not gang. Like I'm in a gang. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. They're legit. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It was, okay. I, I had my white lady moment in class where I was teaching them about gangster rap and early hip hop. So uh-huh. I was like, all right, <laughs> all right, folks, we're going to learn about Notorious B.I.G. and the gangster rappers. So, and this is in my class that's like, there's like eight people from Africa or who are African American. And so it's just, right, like, right. Just, like, it's hilarious. <laughs> right. Right. And then one of them said, Dr. Melody, what does NWA stand for? And I said N-words with attitude. And I think they were testing me to see if I would say the N-word. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I know you're testing me. And I passed. So next. So they're going to at you. They're going to at you about the yeah. white supremacy. Right. Don't. I'm just saying don't at me because I'm sorry. He's probably a fucking white supremacist. I just wish. You, you know what this is about, though? The fact that we don't spend enough time investigating white men and their crimes. And like what's behind them, because there is this assumption that only black and brown people have radical political affiliations behind their actions and white guys. Mm-hmm. It's just mental health. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. and we actually had that problem at my school this week where early reports included that he was on the spectrum, which then is a mental a quote unquote mm-hmm. mental disorder. I right. And I know many people on the spectrum. This is not about mm-hmm. that. But what the Muslim woman heard when that that was said was like, oh, that's the that's the framing of the white man has the illness and the black and brown people have the radical uh, religious affiliation. So that shit is happening like on the ground, too. And so um, all that to say, I got us off topic. No, I mean, I no, I think it's relevant. I mean, it's relevant to the whole framing of of violence, of who perpetrates violence and how we solve violence. Um, And so, I mean, there's more I could could say that's that's largely what i wanted to say i'm can i add in a topic then a subtopic because we didn't we didn't talk about killer mike and the nra and Uh, their upholding of african-americans because this is fascinating can i can i lead on this one please please okay and this is actually part of the reason why we decided to do this show this topic but if y'all are not familiar with what Killer Mike did. He went on NRA TV and basically talked about how he supports the Second Right or the Second Amendment, um, his right to bear arms. And people, uh, at no surprise, ganged up on him and got really mad for what he did because he went and got involved with the NRA that has for ever, but specifically in the last 10 years with Black Lives Matter, not come to support any black person that has Mm. defended themselves with a gun or has been criminalized for having a gun, such as Philando Castile, right? That could have been their rallying cry. Like if the NRA would Mm -hmm. have gotten behind that, that would have been a really great way if they wanted to increase African-American support with their organization. Mm -hmm. But they said nothing, right? And so Mm -hmm. given that even that recent history, Killer Mike going and talking with the NRA, 
is problematic. And also, I was like doing some research and the NRA TV like has an African-American host that like talks about this kind of stuff as well. Right. So they're having these, I think, what would be known as like tokenized black people to work with the NRA. But I was defending Killer Mike a little bit because he said, I just want to read a quote that he was he said after this interview went viral he says if you don't like the nra get a million black people to join it go to the convention realize that this ain't white people in hoods just just regular working class people like you that are probably going to be friendly and engage you and then add your thoughts to the agenda so he's arguing this is not the kkk these are gun owners that want their rights we want our rights too as black people who need to defend ourselves for survival if we all go join the NRA, we can change the platform. And he is arguing that that argument that is based in the Black Power movement got totally sideswiped because of the stereotype and also reality that the NRA doesn't support Black gun owners. And uh, as a white person, I want to be clear that this is me as a white person, but I'm very... When I read about the Black Power movement many years ago, and their argument for arming themselves. That is one of the groups that I'm like, hell yeah, Kendrick Lamar also is still arguing for that in his songs about arming his neighborhood. It gets complicated then, even with people with gun, like within the gun reform world, okay, but this community like needs guns to defend themselves, right? Like that's a, it feels different to me. And so I feel like I'm defending Killer Mike more than other radical left people. How do you feel about the Killer Mike situation, Rachel? My heart hurts about it because I really like him and he disappointed me. I th- so the NRA is invested in guns. I mean, as you just you clear I mean, you just clearly stated sort of the hypocrisy of it. But the fact that Killer Mike is even referencing the Second Amendment, that's not the Black Panthers were not invested in guns because they upheld the Second Amendment. Like pr- to me, like I could give two shits about a constitution that was written by slave owners, like, to be honest with you, like, and I know that it, like, guides a lot of things in society that have, you know, that I've benefited from. So, again, just don't at me again. I'm really, I'm really feeling feisty tonight. The The NRA is, to me, it, it, I don't, it, it, there was just such a, that was also, a, for, and he's, you know, he's a radical socialist. I mean, he's outspoken about that. He's an anti-capitalist. So his idea of sort of fighting from the inside to change what is a deeply racist organization that, uh, have you seen some of those videos they put out? I think it was during, like, anti about Antifa. Like, they... They were these really weird, like, I thought it was, like, not even a real video at first. Like, it was, like, this, it's this, like, a, attractive brunette white woman who's, like, saying about how Antifa is going to try to take over. It's, like, Antifa and, like, liberal school teachers and uh, basically the liberal elite is going to try to, like, take over. Now that Trump's in office, they're going to try to, like, overthrow the government or something, which, you know, we wish. But, you know, arm yourselves to defend your country, blah, blah, blah. Like, but like very like it looked like a Hunger Games, like propaganda video. Like it was very strange. Anyway, so it's a terrible, terrible organization. So for me, I'm like, I don't think the fucking goal should be to work from the inside of that. I think that and we don't need to we don't need to fucking succumb to like, I care about guns because of the Second Amendment. No, we care about guns because liberation, like the history of liberation movements have required that uh, marginalized people have been armed and whether or not we believe that we're going to engage in armed struggle in our lifetime, which I don't really think we will, I don't think we. I still don't think we need to rely on the Second Amendment as a reason to nuance the gun debate. And I feel like he just did. And nor do we need to rely on the NRA. I don't think. I am totally happy to talk with 
rational people ab- well I shouldn't say rational because that's such a western man thing to say but like yeah. I'm really I I'm a pacifist I don't like guns but one of my students that I actually stay in touch with is he's a lobbyist for Minnesota's responsible gun ownership group. And like we mm-hmm. talk and we have like an actual conversation about this stuff and it's nuanced. We don't agree on everything, but like we're understanding each other. The NRA has no moral or ethical bone no. to their organization. Nope. Like I'm right. having a flashback to Columbine, the first school shooting where there was like this fear that the guns were going to get taken away. And like on, I think he said it in Col- in Denver, like near Columbine, that like he said the famous thing, like from my cold, dead hands, you're going to have to pry these mm-hmm. guns from my cold, dead hands. While like the actual mm-hmm. community there was grieving over the loss of many young people. Mm-hmm. And so even if we are OK with people owning guns, you have to be sensitive and they have no sensitivity to how guns can have a negative impact on society. So you can still right. be supportive of of having guns, but also have some sensitivity to know that it's not yep. perfect all the time. It's like our yes. our veganism. It's like we will support yep. veganism and talk to everybody about it, but we will also say like, yeah, it's not perfect for everybody and some and for some people it doesn't work and that's fine. Yep. But we're still going to like support our right to be vegan. I think that's a decent comparison and like that's why as much as I'm not going to try to, like, I'm never going to fucking try to have a career in policy reform making, but I'm also not going to, like, do active work to fight against people who are trying to do that. But I am going to consistently use my, the critical thinking skills I've had the privilege to gain through activism and uh, my life experience and getting a PhD is that I think this this criticism and this critical analysis, I should, to be more specific, is, like, super important to continue to push to push the conversation into something that is more nuanced and that is more in the service of liberation than reform. So clearly we're both on agreement on that. It's not like I disagree with a lot of what Killer Mike says, but just the fact Housed that he... Housed in the NRA yeah, world. Yeah. Well, that stayed pretty civil. Yeah. I mean, I could fight with you more about critiquing the kids, <laughs> but I mean, I do want to say one thing. I love this quote from Marilyn Manson. He got interviewed by Michael Moore, and I play this clip for my students all the time because it's a discussion about media effects, and it's this amazing historical artifact of how we were talking about mass shootings in the 90s. And it was, as a reminder, if you're not from America or you weren't around during that time, they were blaming video games and Marilyn Manson. And Satan, yeah. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Satan did get a bad rap in that whole thing, too. Yeah. God, <laughs> Satan. You know, like, why aren't we talking about Satan anymore? You know, because he's the reason. That I'm sure some churches. We're recording this on Easter. I'm sure, I'm sure some church made sure to make a connection. Yes. I'll have to say more about this next week as a teaser. The sermon that I was at this morning had a whole thing about how they supported the youth for speaking up. And how Hmm. and connected it to Mr. Rogers and doing things that the rest of the society may seem as foolish. But wow. Yeah. What a good service for you to end up at. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, the pastor is obsessed with Mr. Rogers like I am. So it ended up being awesome. That's amazing. I'll tell the full story next week. Back to Satan. I mean, (laughs) Marilyn Manson, same person, apparently. Uh, (laughs) Michael Moore interviewed Marilyn Manson in Bowling for Columbine, which is probably a trippy documentary to watch right now. But Marilyn Manson said to the question, if you could speak with the kids of Columbine, 
what would you say? And he said, I wouldn't say anything to them. I would listen, which is exactly Mm -hmm. what nobody, which is what nobody did. Mm -hmm. And so that has always stuck with me as well with listening to the kids, you know, because his point was like, there's been all this discussion about it's the video games, it's the Marilyn Manson, it's the shock rock, it's the, it's this and this and this and this. And he's like, well, why didn't you go at this point? We weren't talking to the kids. Like, Mm-hmm. Nobody asked them, like, what they wanted to make things better. And they, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on internally in their in their society or in their community that, you know, they had things to say. But thankfully, for because of social media, kids nowadays have u- utilized it to their benefit. And that's why I tell my students they're on Twitter. Why do you make us tweet? Um, because look at this. Political movements can start on Twitter. So you all need to know how to use it in case you all need to start a political movement tomorrow. that's real yeah I mean I hear you and I get the politics of listening I get how important it is to center the most victimized voices and also I don't think you can have the kind of change towards liberation without really better politics than than a lot of like 12 year olds might have yes and and we can love like we can love Martin Luther King Jr. and then critique the hell out of him at the same time right I'm not part of these communities like I'm not a youth I'm not a person, right. you know, I'm not African-American. I'm not Latinx. Right. So like my white uncomfortability that I'm feeling, I would just like to express that. I'm just, yeah. excuse me, I'm going to get my white tears mug. Please hold. <laughs> so actually, now I want to read a quote. We do this show because we have expertise in particular types of political organizing and critical thinking that not a lot of people get access to. Not that people without PhDs can't be critical thinkers, because obviously they can be. But we do have a skill set. And actually, one of the things that I wanted, uh, one of my favorite things from the book Emergent Strategy, which everybody knows if you listen to the show, that is, I mean, truly, I mean, not to be sort of cliche about what people say about amazing books, but it really does feel like a Bible to me in a a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Adrienne Marie Brown is interviewing her sister, Autumn, and they're talking about... um, Adrian's question is, is equal voice possible without equal status? And so it's this mm. question about when sort of people get privileged in particular spaces and 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 this whole that's sort of this whole where the context of where this is coming in. But Autumn has this line where she says, when we are in the space of collectivity, we have to reckon with what we are consenting and not consenting to. Once we get to that space, we see some forms of status fall away as people realize they don't have to consent to it. And then we see some forms of status remain as folks realize it's not a threat. When we can stand in knowing another person's power without feeling threatened, that can be powerful in itself. I love that part of consensus, actually, being able to really see another person's expertise without being upset by it. And I fucking Mm -hmm. love that because I don't think the issue is that we just need to, again, get into this like type of identity politics where we're just like bowing down to anybody who holds a particular identity, but actually being in spaces of building towards a common liberatory goal, whether it's a world without violence Uh, a world without capitalism, a world without prisons, and really finding out what people can bring to the conversation. And if you're 16 years old and haven't been part of political organizing, maybe your expertise isn't like creating a coherent political manifesto. I mean, it could be. Maybe it is. My particular perspective as a person who's been doing like radical political work as, you know, both in theory and praxis is that it that it's not if if we're trying to build movements where we can let people flourish with what 
their strengths are, like, that's the kind of world that I want to see. And so for me, like, again, maybe if we had a bigger platform, I would feel more nervous about this. But where we're at and, like, who we're talking to, I feel pretty comfortable, like, saying I want to push this conversation differently. Yeah, just wait till the right troll gets a hold of our podcast, Rachel. I know. Oh, I know. Oh, but we shall not live in fear. (laughs) No, we shall march on. I don't know. That's my generic Yeah, I mean, British it's another person. reason why it's like, maybe, maybe there's a reason that I'm not getting academic jobs. One day I will be fired. Be <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding on uh, tightly until then. Anyway, good talk. Yes. I appreciate and respect all the points that you said, even if I disagreed with them. It's fine. Cool. I still what love you. What are you reading, watching, and listening oh. to this week? I said I still love you. I still love you, too. Oh, okay. Just checking. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I found this book called She's a Rebel. It is the history of women in rock and roll, which is awesome uh, because the textbook that I'm using for my intro class does not focus on a lot of women artists. They tend to focus on Elvis and Lil Richard and Prince and David Bowie, which are all amazing people. But like there is women equivalence to the amazingness. Mm -hmm. And so I've been really enjoying reading that history book. I'm watching Roseanne if you want to get into another fight. Maybe we can talk about it next time, or we could do a bonus up. I was thinking we should do a bonus up on it. I am watching Roseanne, and I will watch it every week. (laughs) And then I'm listening to the new Dessa album. Dessa is on, uh, she's in the Doomtree crew from Minneapolis, and she has this song on on the album called Fire Drills, and it is about how she tours all over the world, and it's a song about how women limit their experiences because of the perceived dangers that the world uh Mm. that we the perceived dangers that we face in the world so i am reading finally and i'm so fucking excited because it's so amazing um m archive is a book by the newest book by alexis pauline gums it is i'll say more about it i'm sure on the show as i keep reading it but it is a sort of post-apocalyptic theoretical science fiction i mean it's super it was published by duke university press so it's it's very academic but it is technically i think she calls it speculative documentary so it's documenting the post-apocalypse but from this like speculate you know the speculation of what the post-apocalypse will look like and it it is centering black feminist metaphysics in a way that really really fucking speaks to me right now and i'm really grateful for a lot of uh people in the world right now doing black metaphysic feminist work because it really bridges the the further I get into sort of my spiritual practices, whether it's yoga or witchy stuff or anything else, bringing that spirituality into a structural analysis and material analysis of of the world and bringing thinking about things like race and gender and, uh, you know, capitalism uh, in relation to spirituality. It's 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 a beautiful book. And I'm really, really excited to keep reading it. Um, watching. I haven't watched really any TV this week, but last Sunday I saw Love, Simon, which is the sort of gay teen rom-com that's out mm-hmm. right now. And it was very sweet. It was uh, there's problems with it. You know, it's it 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 does have racial diversity in the cast. But um, the main character is a very wealthy white cis boy and so you know there's you know plenty 
plenty of critique, sure, but it was just like a fun Sunday movie. Logan and I are trying to see more movies. And listening to my dear friend, Emily Jane Powers, who put out a new record, and I actually have the physical vinyl record, which is fun. I don't buy records that often. Um, like and vinyl? She's doing, like vinyl? Like vinyl. Like vinyl, vinyl. So proud yeah. of you. Thanks. Getting yeah. off the Spotify um, and buying an actual record. <laughs> I did buy an actual record. It's true. She is a friend of mine from Chicago. She's been making music since I met her when she was 17 years old, and she was making it even before that, and is a truly talented musician whose songs are, like, so associated with periods of my life, particularly in Chicago when I was, like, going through breakups and then going to the bar down the street where Emily was playing and, like, weeping about one of her love songs and just, like, so many connections. And her new record is beautiful. It's called Restless. And she's doing an East Coast tour, or she's doing a tour from Chicago all the way to the East Coast. And she's going to stop in Boston and play in my living room on Wednesday. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's going to be really nice. I love it so So, much. Yeah. You know what I also was just thinking? Our microphones, thank you very much, everybody, supportive uh, donators. Our microphones are also used by musicians to record yeah. So you yep. should record her her performance. Oh, that's a great like, idea. Like these mics that's are a used. Great idea. Yeah. Like for right. this very reason. Like you want to look up the right. settings and like test the sound yep. and stuff, but you should yep. fucking record record her. That's a great that's a great idea. Solid idea. I will totally do that and she'll appreciate your that suggestion. Cool. I'll do it. Living like the living room shows or whatever. Isn't there like a like tiny desk concerts that NPR does, but Rachel's living room? Concert. Oh my god, you should have you could have like a <laughs> that could be a like bonus stuff. You have fun. concerts at your house like more than I do. So Only it's only been twice. I wanted to make it more happy. Like, I mean more. I've actually I mean this is that's a series. WTF Power. When do you talk back? When do you give up? When do you talk back? When do you give up? When do you talk back? When do the flames engulf a house of When do you talk back? When do the flames? 
edit that. Just edit all of that. <laughs> <laughs> this episode will I'm be like, five oh shit, minutes. we actually did a, we talked a lot about it. Um,